What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 50 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by Noise.co.uk and sponsored by Stereo Brain Records. I am your host, slash your boy, and for the 50th time, I am, of course, joined by my very good friend and Mr. Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. Mate, how are you? I'm well. This podcast is officially the longest relationship in my life <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Definitely the most successful one. Um, I am very well for the 50th time, sir. How about you? I'm good, man. I feel better than I did last night. This podcast is going to come out a day later than usual. I'm going to be honest with you all, for those that are listening, uh, that is for no other reason other than I had what might have been the longest day of my life at work on Monday. And I messaged Sam and I was like, mate, I don't fucking, I can't record a podcast tonight. I want to sit and watch the Wolves game and play Borderlands with our best friend, Leon. I cannot record a podcast tonight. I've had too much of a rough day at work. I just need to like stay away from computer screens and just anything that would require any kind of critical thought from me because work was that tiring. So I do apologise for the podcast being a day late. However, uh, trust me, the show would have been much, much worse had I have tried to host it on uh, on Monday for it to come out on Tuesday. I think the podcast would have just been me grunting towards Sam while he tries to make points about certain records. <laughs> Honestly, I was knackered myself. The relief that surged through my body when well, I said, I Because I would have done it if you really fancied it, but I was... Very glad to have a Monday night um, just chilling and stuff. It was it was nice after a tough day at work myself as well. For the 50th time, we are a rock and metal podcast sponsored by the Wonderful Folk of Sarah Brown Records. We're available on YouTube, Apple Music and Spotify, wherever you're listening. If you give us a like and a subscription, that would be absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Every single one counts and every single one really means something to us. On our last episode, Black Sabbath's eponymous debut record entered number five on our greatest metal album of all time list and this week what a way to celebrate 50 episodes our greatest metal album of all time list continues we've got a review on fit for a king's new record the path as well as yes the title of this podcast is correct we have chris meets barney fucking greenway of napalm death and uh, that is going to close out the show today about a 26 minute interview with me and one of the most historical, legendary uh, figures of extreme metal over the last 30 years. What an absolute honour it was to interview Barney. Great chat, some unbelievable stuff in there about his time in South Africa, just after apartheid had had finished um, certain elements of Napalm Death's history and what was going on at that time. Just loads of great stuff. Uh, One of those interviews where I wish I had him for two hours. Uh, I did say to him during the show that I'm going to try and get him again because I didn't actually get a chance to ask him all the questions that I had because he's an incredibly busy guy and he could only spare me 30 minutes. But uh, incredibly grateful to him for coming on the show and we're incredibly grateful to yourselves for listening. Um, Every single listen counts to us we are a small independent podcast so that means the the audience that we have is absolutely ours and it means the world to me and sam do you both listen that everyone's listening both thought there's just two listeners although that is a possibility we don't know that um we're gonna keep going sam we're gonna do another 50 episodes at least uh we've got some good things coming up as well in the pipeline haven't we Oh, absolutely. I think um, I think the future is incredibly bright for noise uh, and the podcast that we're doing. If Imagine the conversation that we'd have had 49 episodes ago where we'd have said that you get to interview a member of um, the front man, the voice of, of, of Grindcore. 
Yeah. And and July just just incredible. Um, one of the most legendary figures in metal to be able to interview for someone like that to give us any time it's just absolutely phenomenal interestingly i, I actually watched the other clip the other day where jim carrey talks about napalm death on a chat awesome show. awesome uh every, every time it makes me laugh when he talks about doing duets yeah and he's like yeah, you bring me flowers <laughs> and he like cuts to the napalm death it is incredible if you ever get a chance that's wonderful but yeah honestly um, the chance to be able to do stuff like this is absolutely wonderful and long may it continue. We've got loads coming up in the pipeline, as I mentioned. We're just getting started. Uh, as I said before, we're, in indep- we're a small independent podcast. Every listen really means something to us. If you are listening, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, please continue. Please give us a subscription. It means the world to us. Sam, uh, we're not going to hold on any longer. Uh, we're going to get episode 50 right underway. We have now reached Mount Rushmore status on our greatest metal of all time, which is truly incredible to me, something that we've been doing for over a year now, and we have now reached the top four. Coming in at number four, Sam, is... Slayer's Rain in Blood. What a fucking album this is. <laughs> This album, I mean, the, I've got loads of detail that we're going to go into here, but just in a nutshell, what an incredible, incredible timestamp for heavy music. This is incredible record, fucking out of this world. I completely agreed. Uh, a, a complete landmark album of one of the greatest periods in metal history. Yeah. And... A album that is so quintessentially associated with thrash metal and the darker sides of heavy metal that it is the, the, those two are almost sewn together. That's how yeah. that's how associated with each other that they are. It is obviously one of the all-time great albums, and the, and I think the perfect opening of this Mount Rushmore section um, of the um, a top one hundred, where it's the most impactful albums, the most legendary albums, the most well-respected albums and the ones that have lasted the test of time. I think we'll be talking about Slayer's Raining Blood in another 34 years. Oh, yeah. And we'll, we'll continue to do so time and time and time again because it is, it is just timeless. You mentioned 34 years ago, which brings me straight into um, a bit of history on the album. Uh, Slayer's third studio record released on October 7th, 1986 on Def Jam Recordings. Can we speak about that for a moment, please? Of course. Um, I was going to read you some of the other artists that have been on that on Def Jam recordings. A lot of the <laughs> a, a lot of these weren't on the label at the same time as Slayer, of course. But it does quite paint quite a picture. Um, LL Cool J, who actually was yes. on the label at the same time, uh, Drake, Mariah Carey, Lady Sovereign, Rick Ross, Neo, and Dubs. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's just it, the fact. I think it's both hilarious and possibly one of my favourite things of all time that Slayer released a record on Def Jam Recordings. I, I think it's fucking incredible. Now, this was driven. I do believe this was driven a lot by uh, working with Rick Rubin because Rick Rubin yeah. found Rick Rubin, of course, founded Def Jam Records. So uh, you know, it was. It wasn't like Slayer had a list of uh, record labels in front of them and it was like, oh, we'll go for Def Jam Records. 
they want that they were with Rick Rubin and Rick Rubin was Def Jam Records. So, it, so it, 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 oh, the way I've painted it at the beginning makes it look like there was a long list and the points at Def Jam first, which wasn't the case. However, in Def Jam Recordings history, this album is listed in it. And I think when you consider what it's surrounded by, it is one of the most fascinating, hilarious, incredible, small little footnotes of metal history. How incredible. <laughs> I completely agree. Can you imagine the Def Dam Jam Records Awards party or something? <laughs> and it's it's just like 15 hip-hop artists and just slayer like the four Grebos in the corner. Um, but it also, I completely agree, it's wonderful. And Def Jam is a cultural phenomenon beyond music yeah. as well. Oh, yeah. Associated with comedians like um, sort of Chris Rock and several others whose names escape me at this moment in time. But they they're, they're, they're made massive inroads into into to mainly sort of African-American culture. And I think that that really actually led to some of the first experiments between Slayer and hip-hop artists, which led to Slayer tuning out with Beastie Boys, which eventually led to maybe some of the bravery that led to a bit of new metal, which is interesting. But um, I also think it speaks really, even in 86, to the legendary reputation of Rick Rubin. Um, because his work was so fantastic for such a long period of time that to have Slayer and Dave Lombardo, who obviously was, was one of the driving forces to get Rick Rubin was because of his work with LL Cool J, which means there was a point in time where there's Kerry King and Jeff yeah. Hadam and sat on a sofa listening to the new LL Cool J album in like 1985, commenting on how good the production is, which I think is a fantastic image. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think it speaks to, it's one of my favourite things as well about about this album. I think it speaks to, like I said, the the power of Rick Rubin and the the power of production, which obviously paid off massive dividends on the record itself. I suppose it makes sense, sense Sam, if we speak about because we always do this, uh, where thrash metal was at this point. Um, mm-hmm. By now, nineteen eighty six, it's really running now and has moved out of its purely underground status that it withheld in the early 80s. Uh, do you believe that's fair to say? I do. I think it was... I mean, it's, is it fair to say it's the best year ever for thrash metal by quite some distance? Isn't well, it? That, is, that question is coming up in a short while. Um, but um, it's definitely a very healthy stage. Uh, I think 1986 Metallica just brought out Master of Puppets, which was a pretty decent album. Uh, Megadeth did um, Peace Cells. Slayer are knocking around. You've got Anthrax who did Among the Living. Um, thrash metal is, is generating popularity throughout America after essentially being just a Californian um, ideology for a couple of years. Yeah, I would absolutely say that thrash metal had escaped its underground moniker pretty much the early part, parts of this year. Maybe you could argue that that kicked off with Metallica's Ride the Lightning in 84 and onwards from there. But by 86, absolutely, it was a well-established um, phenomenon, really, among metal fans. So I think that, and obviously we're going to discuss this as we go further in, but for Slayer to really capture and ride that wave of thrash metal for 34 years speaks to the longevity and greatness of this album because for, for thrash metal, you know, it's kind of like the... It's kind of like the NBA argument, right? Like, if I, you know, if you ask, if you stop someone in the street who knows a lot about NBA and say, "What's the great? Who's the greatest NBA player of all time?" The chances are they will say Michael Jordan. You will find 
a few LeBrons out there, you will yeah. find a few Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's or uh, Magic Johnson, that kind of thing. But the, the mm. likelihood is if you stop someone in the street who you know has got decent knowledge of, of NBA and you ask them who the greatest NBA player of all time is, they will likely say Michael Jordan. And I feel like if you We're really stop... enjoying this so far, by the way. <laughs> I feel like if you stop someone in the street and you somehow knew that they had a decent knowledge of thrash metal and you say, what's the greatest thrash metal album of all time? I personally feel, and I've got no evidence to back this up. It's just my personal feelings on the matter. I feel like they, their likelihood would be raining blood. And then Pete, the, you'll get a couple of peace cells in there. You'll get a couple of Among the Livings in there. And you'll get a couple of um, Ride the Lightnings in there. Although, is hmm, Ride the Lightning a thrash metal record? We could debate that for a while. Uh, but you, you, you might get, a few killer malls in there. Do you, do you know what I mean? I personally yeah, feel like the likelihood is you would come out with raining blood and 34 years later, that is quite a fucking statement, is it not? Absolutely. Uh, I completely agree that um, like the NBA, like sports, like a lot of things, we have a tendency to be a bit recency biased and we always like, especially as our contemporary generations differ, we always like to, to hail and crown the new thing this is the greatest thing we've ever seen. We always like to, to say yeah. that the generation that we're in is the better, the most impactful, the most influential. And as the years go by, um, these things change. You know, for every, every Jordan, there's, there's, there's a generation of people saying Kobe Bryant was better and LeBron James is better than that. And there is the same here where you ha- will have people say perhaps that, all right, okay, Slayer's Rainy Blood, the greatest thrash album of all time, but there might be a generational gap where people start thinking, well, you know, I think um, Chaos AD was better or I want to create the argument that, I don't know, a Power Trip album could could challenge for sort of modern thrash metal, for yeah. example, because of a generational gap. But I agree with you that if you, if you polled a thousand metal fans, 997 of them would pick this because... <laughs> right. Um, because it is. It just, it just is. It is thrash metal, and, and thrash metal was already um, a pretty um, fast-paced genre where not a lot of embellishment in, was included. So, obviously, we had we had metal for long years of like long songs and sort of complex ideologies, and you know songs about you know fucking elves and dragons and and sort of like lengthy um, into like sort of instrumental sections, right? And thrash even to in comparison to that type of metal was always very much spartan um straight to the riff fast as possible it's like punk rock for people with long hair it's just yeah. fast and aggressive and even in the thrash world slayer by slayer's raining blood by comparison is without even some of the fat that other thrash albums have like it's it's I don't know how to describe it. It's the Cristiano Ronaldo of thrash metal. It's the most physically dominant, fat-free. It's the most in-shape, fastest, quickest, most physically exerting, aggressive yeah. thrash metal album. It, it is just, from start to finish, thrash metal perfection in almost every conceivable way. For any, any, any title that you want to put over what, and even generally, outside of sort of, oh, I like a bit of melody in my metal, everything else that people love about metal, aggression, speed, dark imagery, everything, Slayer is like, it's like a, it's an A plus is across the board for that. It is an exercise in, in, in chaos. 
It truly is. It's thrash metal. It's absolute finest. And I don't just think that no one's got, no one's better. I don't think that the thrash metal albums no one's got even close. Yeah, I to, to to Slayer's Raining Blood, and yeah. I and I, and me and you, like, we're, one of the few things me and you agree on in terms of eighties metal, like, is our love of the classic thrash metal stuff. Yeah, like mid you know, Slayer and Slayer and Metallica, and even you could argue some portions of Pantera and Sepultura and things like that. Um, it's nothing like this. No. Absolutely nothing like this. A few other albums that came out in 1986, you already mentioned uh, Metallica's Master of Puppets and Megadeth's Peace, so I suppose buying. Uh, ACDC's Who Made Who, uh, Judas Priest, Turbo, Iron Maiden, Somewhere in Time, Van Halen did 5150. Uh, also, just want to, a quick side note for a second. Also, I saw the David Lee Roth release an album in 1986. Uh, very little knowledge of Van Halen, mate. Uh, what happened there? Was it was was he doing both or had they split? Oh, they, they, they'd split up at that point. Right. Who, was fucking, who was fronting Van Halen if it wasn't David Lee Roth? A bloke called Sammy Hagar. Ah, that's, um, that's a difficult job, isn't it? So, it is, it yeah. is. There was always rumours that, that David Lee Roth was nobbing Alex Van Halen's missus. So. Oh, oh, fucking hell. Right, um, but also, on, on the note you're pointing out, do you know by any chance, A, the top album in terms of records sold in 1986, or B, the top-selling single in 1986? Um, top set. Top selling album in terms yeah. of our sphere that we're discussing. Um, yeah, which well, the top selling album in general is actually a rock album in this year. Right, okay. You know what, Sam? I'm not going to guess. I'm just going to let you tell me. I am very curious, though. Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet. Oh, fuck me. Right, okay. And do you, and do you have any idea what the top selling single would be? This is uh, a rock song as well. Right, okay. Please hit me with it. Europe's The Final Countdown. Oh, fucking. To be fair, it bangs. Doesn't that sum up 1986, though? Yeah. Like, yeah. in terms of the cult, in terms of the culture, like spandex, massive guitar solos, yeah, fluffy yeah. hair, like, sort of pretty lads on the stage, and Slayer come out. And that's why Thrash Metal became so popular, is because for the long-haired, not that good-looking guy, um, this was a... This was almost an antithesis to these sort of pretty boys in spandex, the Poison Generation and, and, and Motley Crue's and, and Bon Jovi's of the world um, were seen as like posers and sort of like feminine, um, back when being feminine was considered a, like a bad character trait at the time. And by comparison, Slayer was seen as masculine and cool and dark and heavy. And that almost furthered the reputation of thrash because it was seen as a response to it in the same way that punk rock became massively popular in 77 as it, because it was seen as a complete antithesis to the like the like pink Floyds and pop bands of the world that were popular in the late seventies. You know what I mean? Like yeah. people that hated this into ABBA on top of the pops and stuff had somewhere else to go. And, and that's what was going on here. So I mean, like imagine, <laughs> just imagine like this is the complete antithesis of each other in a world that was listening to, you know, listen to like Bruce Springsteen and Prince and U2 and, and Bon Jovi. And then there's this whole other dark side of, of the corner that was just gaining massive popularity. Certified gold in the US this sum with uh, 500, just over 500,000 album sales. Now, I've got no doubt that this is going to be the album in uh, Mount Rushmore of metal records of all time, which is going to have sold the least. That there's no dispute in that. However, five hundred thousand sales for a, for an album as brutal 
harsh and inaccessible as Rain in Blood, I think, is astonishing. I completely agree. Hey, how, how could agree. you possibly have heard about this record if you hadn't caught Slayer Live in 1986? And, or, or, yes. you know, or you weren't having a friend that was tape trading with you. I mean, there is, there is just no way you would have known. There's no fucking way you would have found out about any other way. Music, um, M- has MTV hit? The MTV had yeah. hits, but they weren't. Yeah. It, they, they certainly weren't. They certainly weren't <laughs> fucking playing thrash. Um, when they were doing like headbangers ball, they were playing like Skid Row and Motley Crue and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, they're not going to be on MTV radio. That's a laugh in itself. Um, okay, the odd music magazine might feature them, but again, like you said, there was so much money to be made in spandex pants that I can't. You know <laughs> that bands like Slayer and underground thrash bands weren't going to make it to front cover. I mean, there's just no way that you would have found about, out about this band apart from word of mouth and tape traders. So I think 500,000 sales is, is actually, I mean, I, I think that in terms of, in terms of the limit, the, the kind of limited surroundings that Slayer were in at this point, you could, you could quadruple that really. Do you know what I mean? If if they had the machine behind them, but it's almost more impressive that they did this without that, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, imagine me and you in Wolverhampton in nineteen eighty six. How on earth do we even hear about Slayer? No, how, well, you how does it happen? You wouldn't. Would you know you? what I mean? Like, if you, if you live in America, maybe you catch them on a tour somewhere or something. Um, like Slayer weren't going to play like Monsters of Rock. No. You're like, maybe you catch him supporting Ozzy Osbourne or some like heavy metal act somewhere. You maybe catch him for 15 minutes and, and you sort of have to go from there. But I agree with you. Sell 500,000 records. <laughs> um, it entered the Billboard chart, didn't it? Yeah, 94. Oh, it, it has, so not the top 50% of the Billboard chart. Yeah, it's, it, it <laughs> like is it's, absurd. It's, it's, it's absurd. It, it, it's absolutely, absolutely incredible with no music video when music video was quite literally king. Um, re- little to no radio airplay. I imagine, like, maybe the exception is, like, you know, you could have, like, underground... You used to have, like, underground radio stations, didn't you, in the 80s yeah. and stuff yeah. like that, like... Um, and people, like, doing, like, radio stations from, like, college campuses and stuff. But that is, like, a, a one in 2,000 chance. There was no, like, Kerrang! radio going on. It's just... It, it's just... It is honestly astonishing that Slayer, through, essentially through word of mouth and touring, that, touring their asses off, managed to build this level of, of success commercially. It's astonishing. I'm also going to go on a, on a limb and say I'm 100% certain, and you haven't fully shared what the uh, rest of the list with me at uh, this point, I, I'm 100% certain there'll be no album left in this list that's as extreme as this. No, this is the, this is the heaviest band. This is the heaviest album that is this high. Every other, every other album is lighter. Yeah. Than this. Absolutely. This is the highest heavy, 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 heavy album. Highest extreme metal album. And then and that was kind of just to back up the point that we were just talking about. And now that you've now you've made that point. Um I believe that this came second in uh Kerrang's album of the year in nineteen eighty six, although I would need to double check it. So let's just put a pin in that. But branching off that point, again, if I remember correctly, after nineteen ninety not a single thrash record makes it into the Kerrang! top five of the album of the year, apart from Sepultura for the rest of the 90s. Now, I think calling Sepultura thrash 
is a bit of a thin statement, personally. Yeah, yeah it's a stretch. If you want to call them thrashing, I wouldn't stand and argue with you about it, but I personally wouldn't. Um, so outside of outside of Sepultura, if you fancy, there's no thrash re- thrash metal record in Kerrang's top five in their album of the year for the entirety of the nineties. After uh, Slayer Seasons in the Abyss is in there uh, in nineteen ninety. After that, there's not another record that turns up for the rest of the nineties. And I didn't even bother looking at the two thousands because I just knew I knew they would. I'd have been very surprised to have found one in there from the fucking two thousands. So Sam, uh, do you think? Thrash's biggest problem is that in the late 80s, you've got Slayer, Megadeth, pre-1986 Metallica, and Anthrax at the top. And then there's this massive, massive, huge void until the, ne- the next band. Is that the problem? Um, I think that's part of the problem. I, I, I just think that it's very difficult to have an all-time, all-time great thrash band when so much of the genre was perfected by yeah. the end of this album. I like mean, look it, at what you said when we reviewed Havoc. You were like, I mean, it's all right, it? but I've already heard the five best thrash metal albums of all time, and this isn't one of them. Yeah, and, and it's no offence to Havoc. Uh, um, and if Havoc had written the sixth best, I'd probably give it a nine and a half out of ten or something. But um, yeah, I think I think just part of the issue is that metal, thrash metal, was came and went as fast as the songs are played. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, it it it, it was brilliant brutal and brief and it just disappeared as quickly as it came and it peaked very quickly and the thing is about thrash the nature of the the nature of the genre where else do you go how are you get you got you can't get faster than this either yeah there used to be like a who can play faster little mini competition this ended immediately in thrash this necrophobic on this (laughs) case done it's over over call it Fucking, it's done. Um, so there's nowhere else to go. Everything else be- was just an emulation. Um, so that's oh, that's that's probably part of it. And also, the nature of metal changed, and the way that songs are written changed. And as everything, everything is an adaption of what came before, but also yeah. a slight departure. Of course, yeah, yeah. You know, and if I I agree with you that Sepultura, we could say pseudo thrash, right? Yeah, hybrid, that's fair. Thrash, that's thrash fair, hybrid yeah. band, that sort of thing. Um, but if they hadn't of hybrid, like done a thrash hybrid with the the other elements that Sepultura are brilliant at, um, then we probably wouldn't be as interested. If they just did the fast stuff, it's like, well, this isn't Slayer, so this is just another version of Slayer. You have to adapt it anyway. Slayer perfected this particular type of blueprint, but did it in such a way that it. It, everything else compares negatively to it by comparison. So to continue thrash, you have to change thrash because of Slayer. It's it's ironically one of the few metal albums that are this high that instead of spawning a thousand um, copies, um, they spawned a complete end of the genre as we knew it. Because yeah. even Slayer couldn't replicate. No, they no, deliberately went, a, they made a, a deliberate point. decision in 1988 saying we can't do that again. We've got to go slow. We've got to go evil. Even they recognise that's the peak as far as fra- fast thrash is going to go. Even, great that, point. even the band that produced it. Yeah. So thrash had to move past Slayer's Raining Blood because even even Kerry King and Dave Lombardo had to move beyond it. So yeah, it's it's a tough one, but it's Slayer's legacy of this album is that it it 
defined and simultaneously destroyed its genre almost 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 immediately and, and just to branch off that point before we move on here i'm not an encyclopedia on thrash but for me it's what happened in 1986 rust in peace by megadeth seasons in the abyss and then Peritrip. do you know what i mean like like after seasons in the abyss I skip. Uh, well, no, uh, God Hates Us All by Slayer in Cabbage County 2001 fucking bands. Um, so apart from that one record in 2001, after 1990, I skip all the way to Nightmare Logic by Paratrip in 2015. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, because, yeah. because, I mean, what else are we fucking hanging around for here? Do you know what I mean? Uh, and I think just piggybacking off the point you made, I feel like, although I'm not an encyclopedia on Thrash, I don't feel like there'd be any kind of hidden album that I haven't heard that came out in 1994. It's a Thrash album that you'd show me. I'd be like, oh, fucking hang on. We'll put this up with Rain and Blood instead. I just don't believe, I don't know, but I just don't believe that's the case. And again, I think these kind of statements that we're making just kind of underlie the brilliance and importance of this album. I completely agree. Uh, you, list, you, list the, you talk about this isn't one of the five greatest Thrash albums of all time. Off the top of your head, five of them, three of them are Slayer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's Seasons in the Abyss, South of Heaven, this. And then we're arguing about whether we put a Metallica album in there because we'll talk about Master of Puppets when we talk about Master of Puppets. And yeah. we talk about Ride the Lightning. We've talked about Ride the Lightning because it's, it's, it's thrashy, but it's not a thrash album. And then you put Rust in Peace. You might put Peace Cells. And that's it. That's yeah. it, man. Like, it. Yeah. 86 to 91, that's your lot. Everything after that feels like a, a faint imitation, which I think is incredibly interesting how even 34 years later with the, the production, the technical ability of, of musicians have gone leaps and bounds forward where you listen, we listen to talk about his Fit for a King album later. If you drop Fit for a King in 1985, people's heads would spin. Yeah. Um, and by, by all intents and purposes, Fit for a King, and we'll get to this later, aren't like the heaviest or scariest band even no. within their own genre, do you know what I mean? No, no. And and that's that's the way that it is. Um, but right, right, raining blood is still leaps and bounds ahead in terms of intensity and lyrical content and everything. It's remarkable, remarkable. I don't think a metal album has aged as well as raining blood. Probably not now. I, I really Probably. don't in terms of pace and production and what it does for a metal fan. I just think it's, it's timeless. It sounds as great now as it did. It did in November 86. At least I'd, I'd, I'd imagine so. But well, also as well, and uh, you know, if, if you listen at home, I promise we're going to start talking about the heavy album actually sounds in a minute, right? But also, <laughs> so, I, I don't think that an album has been more lauded in metal. And I, I think that can I deliver that in both the problematic and the kudos sense of the word. And what I mean by that is, I have this running theme, I've spoken about on this podcast before, of frustration of whenever uh, Metal Hammer or Kerrang! or any music publication that I follow is championing this new heavy band, there's always one fucking arsehole in there that's like, it's not as heavy as Raining Blood. And I'm like, fucking hell, dude, it came out 34 years ago. Will you please fucking move on i beg you <laughs> please fucking move on from ranging blood and and i think you know there's an argument to say whether whether it's more problematic than anything else but since we're talking about the greatness of the album 
I will throw that in into this conversation as well. Look how much people use this as a measuring stick today. For any fucking heavy band that comes out, there is always that one fucker. And sometimes there's several fuckers that are like, oh man, it's not as heavy as Raining Blood. I'm not going to listen. Yeah, that's, I, that's that's what this album is. It is it's it's the ultimate barometer for heaviness in every sense of the word. Um, from imagery, album cover, riff work, drumming, it is every barometer for the dark side of metal. Absolutely. And if you're if you're heavier than heavier than Slayer's Raining Blood, then you are an extreme metal band. That should be the barometer. Yeah, but that's um, uh, I get you, that. Yeah, you know what I mean. If you bring out an album that's heavier than Raining Blood, you're 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 an extreme metal band, and 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 that's that's how it how it's how it is. But yeah, obviously, you could use that as a beating stick to hit metal fans fans over the head in terms of how backwards looking they are and all that sort of thing, and how um, how nostalgic they are for a bygone era and all this sort of thing. Um, but it also, like you say, you can speak to it from the other side in the way that it is absolutely defined an entire era of metal and has transcended every year that has passed and it has propelled Slayer to a legendary status that they will always occupy almost purely because of this album. How familiar were you with Shown Our Mercy and Hella Waits? Because, and those were the first two Slayer records for anyone listening that's not aware. Uh, because for me, outside of Black Magic on Shown Our Mercy and the title track of Hella Waits, I'm not. Um, though, with these, when you listen to those two songs in isolation now, it's pretty clear that if that formula was taken to the next level, they could reach like real greatness, which of course they did. Um, in terms of the records, are you familiar? Have you delved? I have because um, my first Slayer album wasn't Raining Blood. Right. It was um, it was a live album because you know of course. Yes. And um, it was a it's the two disc set decade of aggression. Right. And they started with Hello Eight and they play songs off of their first couple of albums like Die by the Sword and Black Magic and stuff like that. So that was my introduction to sort of earlier Slayer. Um, so I. I obviously delved a little bit more since but that was my first entry into that so i heard you know you hear like raining blood on the i think i heard it on like the radio and then i found there was like a live album that had all these sort of songs on i bought that and then obviously brought raining blood as well and stuff so um but yeah that was that was that was my entry to it and that allowed me to have a wider appreciation for slayers back catalogue and even as a, even at a young age you could tell the difference between Hello White's era Slayer, Shown on Mercy era Slayer, and Raining Blood era Slayer, um, just in how efficient the songs are. Hello White, I love Hello White. Awesome. It's a long song, yeah. uh, builds te- builds tension, builds right all the way up. Has that bit that I love, but it's got that section where it's the toms and the, that little riff that sort of expands every sort of four bars, and finally engages into that thrash metal um, run that's the uh, the centerpiece of the song. And Black Magic is a song that starts with like a, an up-tempo sort of yeah. rhythm, but it's dun, not thrashy, dun, but, it's, but it's, it's, not, it's, not a th- it's not a it's not a thrash metal section, is it? You know, it's yeah. uh, Dave, Dave doesn't start playing that until a little bit later. And they then divert from thrash metal to like these sections in between. By the time Raining Blood came out, they abandoned all pretense 
of getting to thrash and began with it, you know, immediately punched down the throat. And most of the songs are thrash with a little bit of something else. Whereas previously and later, the, the, the writing style shifted to more mid-tempo stuff with elements of thrash metal stylings rather than it being purely thrash from A to B. Whereas Raining Blood is almost throughout, with, with a few exceptions, completely thrash-based, which is why it just jumps out the speaker, even now. Produced by Rick Rubin, Sam, Raining Blood. Um, my personal favourite that he's worked on is Toxicity. Uh, but I would never begrudge anyone that chooses Raining Blood. Um, and how, how do you feel about that? Is this your favourite Rick Rubin piece or are you Toxic? Is it? Or are you something else? Uh, no, I do think it comes down to the two that you mentioned. I think um, I think Raining Blood's is more successful mix in process because of the achievement at the time and how difficult it would have been to sort of tie Slayer together in the way that he did. Um, I also prefer Raining Blood as an album personally to Toxicity, but it is like by the thinnest of margins. Yeah, we're picking hairs here. We, we really, we really, really are. Um, it's just a, it's just a, it's just a personal preference. And I literally couldn't even explain why, you know, just something slightly gravitate to you more. It just, I feel in my heart that I prefer Slayer. Um, but I think that Rick Rubin's job at the time that he found this band and what he did for this band, it's astonishing um, because listen to, uh, and I'm going to put Metallica Master Pumps on one side because that's a different album entirely, but listen to every other thrash album before or even since um, and listen to the production. Yeah. Listen to Peace Cells, then listen to this. Like, man, it's like, I could convince you that Rainy Blood came out in 2002 yeah, you could. In comparison to 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 to, to sort of uh, piece true, out, yeah. yeah, because because the production is incredible, and what Rick Rubin did first and foremost is made the drums the I think the center of this album, um, which is probably one of the reasons why I love it so much. But that was that was a staple of Rick Rubin's approach anyway. Listen to some of his best albums, the percussive low end bass drum stuff. Is massive, which is why he makes fucking great hip hop records. Yeah, because it's all about that's what it's all about. That entire genre of music is centered around that beat, and why he's made great metal uh, metal records, especially with great metal drummers. Like yeah. listen to like John Dalmayan's um, drum work on Toxicity; it just punches through the speaker. It's perfectly recorded, and the same here with Slayer. It, with a poor mixing job, with a poor mixing job, you wouldn't be able to quite work out every little intricacy of what Dave Lombardo's doing. And that would be at the detriment of the album. But the fact that you've given this song to Rick Rubin, these songs to Rick Rubin, you can hear every thunderous kick pedal, every every hi-hat, every snare roll, every ride cymbal, every crash. And it, it reinforces just, obviously we'll get to that later, just the, the superb job that Dave Lombardo do, uh, has done on this album. And it, the fact that it's the centre of, of, of this, this record gives it this earthquake tremor sort of feel that's constantly undercutting these riffs gives it such a bassy percussive feeling that that's really superb and perfectly suited to this album so thunderous well 
on Rick Rubin, the producer, Kerry King, uh, guitarist of Slayer, uh, would go on to say, uh, Rubin really cleaned up our sound on that record, obviously referring to Randy Blood, uh, which drastically changed what we sounded like and how people perceived us. It was like, wow, you can hear everything. And those guys aren't just playing fast. Those notes are on time. It was what we needed to be. Before that, we were happy to sound like Venom or Merciful Fate. We played in reverb land, for lack of a better term. And the reverb was the first thing that Rubin took out. When we first heard the mix, we were like, why didn't we think of that before? And I think that is a really fucking brilliant quote that sums up the job that Rubin Rubin did with this album. Because look at the bands that that he's referring to there. Venom or Merciful Fate. I I don't mean any disrespect to those bands, but... I mean, you, you you consider Slayer after Raining Blood and consider Slayer now. They're fucking miles ahead of those two bands. Like, it's just, they're not even, I mean, no merciful fights are headlining uh, Bloodstock uh, in 2021. That's awesome, and Bloodstock fans are really happy for that. But, like, merciful fights and Slayer aren't even in the same conversation in terms of impact on metal. So look at the bands that Kerry King is referencing Slayer against pre-Raining Blood to now. And they're not even in this. You wouldn't even consider the argument, would you? That is quite a statement. It absolutely is. Uh, it shows the sort of projection that they were taking, but also it shows that the 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 surrounding sounds around metal and the way that metal was being written and what metal was being played, and that the reverb land that he refers to is this echoey um, sort of sound to sort of add resonance to the guitar. And when you took all that out, you're left with this sharp air tight sort of um, production which perfectly perfectly suits thrash where you can pick up every note as kerry says and and really be as exact and as surgical as this band are allows you to really focus on what it is at its core like i said like i said at the top it's this is stripped back it's as spartan as a metal album absolutely is it's 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 condensed down to its corest principle most core principles and the uh, Rubin's production allowed for that by pretty much reducing any effects. Apart from the rain at the start of Raining Blood, there is literally no effects, no vocal ed- additions, no reverb, nothing. This is the band, as, as is. It's the most honest reproduction of a metal album in terms of level of its success as well. I mean, ever, you compare it to its contemporaries, compared to the albums that have come, be- come before it on this list, Black Sabbath aside, but even Black Sabbath had effects um, that, they, that they used to sort of add stuff. This is just the band, it's extraordinary. And it worked perfectly for, for Slayer, a no-nonsense thrash metal band, just perfectly matched with the producer. Clocking in, Sam, at just under 30 minutes. Uh, now, it does upset me that the version of Raining Blood that's on Spotify comes with two extra songs. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it, in fact, it bothers me to my core that if, <laughs> that, that if you listen to Raining Blood on Spotify and don't know any better, you will think that at least one of those songs is a part of it. And I think it detracts away from the perfect thrash metal album. I'm not a fan of those two songs. And it bothers me that that version is on Spotify. However, the standard version of Raining Blood is 28 minutes long. Uh, you mentioned contemporaries there. That's a great point. Uh, Megadeth's piece sells, but who's buying clocks in at around the hour mark? I think 55 minutes. Uh, Master of Puppets, of course, uh, clocks in at around uh, the 57 minute to uh, one hour, two minute mark, I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, now, obviously, Master of Puppets is a completely different record to this. However, you're talking about you know a 30 minute album 
1986. That wasn't the norm. Um, no, no, it was not. In in punk, possibly in hardcore, possibly, but in terms of uh, metal or any kind of offshoot of metal, uh, that was quite far from the norm. Um, and that it's quite clear that by this point. Slayer had thrown all their chips into straight-up intensity, um, a point which Jeff Hanneman backs up here. I've got a quote here. Um, at that time, we always listened to Metallica and Megadeth to see what they were doing. But one thing about me and Kerry is that we got bored of riffs really quick. We can't drag the same thing over and over or do the same verses six, to- six times in a song. If we do a verse two or three times, we're already bored with it. So we weren't trying to make the song shorter. That's just what we were into. When we finished Raining Blood, we had this meeting with Rubin, and he was like, do you realise how short this is? And we were going, oh, fuck. And then we all collectively looked at each other and said, so what? Um, I like their sound. Obviously, this is the late, great uh, Jeff Hanneman. I like their sound, that he's really open in the fact that, like, yeah, we listened to Metallica and Megadeth to see what they were doing. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. They were they were showing there were there were a lots of opportunities Lars already told about that they were, when he sort of um heard <laughs> heard Slayer's Raining Blood about three months after Master of Puppets came out. And he was like, Oh shit, we've got some competition. Yeah. Yeah. Um because there was a voying who's gonna be top of the big four was still a, a real discussion. And Slayer had emerged as the the chief contender to Metallica and and, and they absolutely were in competition with each other. You know, they're all from the same area, pretty much, around sort of California in the Bay Area and stuff. And they played gigs with each other all the time. It was inevitable. And there was definitely an element of competition that played into that. And while Metallica chose to be, you know, more varied or ambitious in terms of changing their sound and their topics and things like that, Slayer, like, picked a skill and said, we're going to be the best at that and that no one's going to be better than us than that. And that's who we are, and that's the heaviest, and that's the fastest. And they absolutely found their niche, found their found their thing, and just drove it home. But I, I agree with you. I, I completely love the competition element between the two, um, between the two or three bands that existed at the time. Album kicks off with "Angel of Death," Sam, uh, the greatest thrash, thrash metal album ever, greatest thrash metal song ever written. I think it. I think it probably is. <laughs> Uh, I, I yeah I I I'm just considering whether I consider it the greatest metal song ever written. Uh, there is an argument, isn't there? I mean, there really <laughs> is. Like, if you really think about what makes met uh, just purely metal great, um, what doesn't this have? <laughs> well, I, I, I mean... I'm yet to th- I'm yet to think of a what doesn't this have? Like, um, all right, so iconic riff check two iconic riffs actually. Um, um, incredible guitar work and guitar solos, iconic vocals, including the chorus and 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 and, and Tom Araya's scream at the start. Yeah, the greatest, greatest five seconds of drum work in metal history at the conclusion of this song. Just, yeah. and I wanna, I'll talk about that at a different point in terms of what that has done for metal. Um. But no, no one comes close to what that was at that particular time. And the most controversial set of lyrics yeah. on a leading metal album, on a leading yeah. metal song ever. And when you consider that before Def Jam, um, it was associated with Def Jam, was David Geffen, who was a Jewish B 
business owner. Um, yeah. And Slayer wrote their opening track about a Nazi scientist and had to deal with all the anti-Semitic rumours that followed. When they always, and rightly so, pointed out that their song was not, was not a support of fascism, merely a narrative that was describing the evils of it and the crimes committed by one of its chief sort of conductors if Joseph, in Joseph Mengele. All those things combined in terms of what metal is known for and, and, and sort of what metal has become and is famed for. Is there a better example of metal than, than Slayer's Angel of Death? It's the great... I, and, and as well, it's lasted 34 years. It's transcendent. It, honestly, is it the greatest metal song ever? I mean, mate, you just made a really, really compelling argument for it. That mate, what would I mean, even be I mean, in the ballpark, though? Like, what even if we think of alternatives, what would what would we put against it? Master of Puppets, Paranoid, uh, Paranoid, um, Run to the Hills, maybe Number of the Beast, uh, Hallowed Be the Name, something like that. Um, walk, yeah, walks, walks a fucking great. I, I, I would uh, chuck on Broken in there. Um, okay. And then fucking am I? Uh, yeah, Davidian. Okay. Um, yeah. fucking. And then, and then, mate, like, oh, you see, and that's... Slim Pickens after that, innit, mate? Mate, it, well, you start really. I mean, maybe Roots, Buddy Roots. Okay. Uh, but okay. but again, but again, legitimate like, challenger to greatest. Do you know yeah, what I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's tough, man. I mean, that is. I mean, I didn't. I, I like to when we do this. I like to have like a, a personal foreshadowing because I I know you so well. I like to like think oh, I I base my notes around where I think you're going to go as well. And usually that bounces off really well. But I didn't expect you to to go down this route. And you, mate, I think you might be right. You know, I think that's a well, fair shift. Look, I'm just I'm just thinking about it sort of off the cuff. I actually think this is the greatest of this album. The only real competition is Raining Blood off this album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, like legitimately, yeah. it's the, it's Raining Blood, this or Master of Puppets. That I, I think that's the three, and then Paranoid or or the first Black Sabbath song, just for like, you know, legendary status, first one ever type of thing. But if we're doing a like a Mount Rushmore for heavy for greatest metal songs, that's the four. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that. That's the four. Two are on one album. <laughs> yeah. Like it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. So, I, I, I just—it's just perfect. This song is absolutely perfect. I remember the first time I heard this, and I, I legitimately couldn't stop listening to it for for months. For months, I used to invite friends around that weren't even into metal and <laughs> play it on my CD, and being like, "Listen to this!" Like people we went to school with that were just like looking at each other, like, "Why are we here?" Um, and I'll be like, isn't this great? Like he's talking about the Nazis and stuff. Isn't it cool? And then listen to the drums and how fast it is. Like it just, and this was in like 2007. <laughs> it just blew the doors off for me. And, and, and has obviously blown the doors off for pretty much everybody else. It is just brutal from start to finish. Do you remember the first time you heard this? Yes. Um, I was just starting to really branch out I'd discovered Parkway Drive, etc., and I was like, right, okay, it's quite clear now that I've grown. I've grown from I really like pop punk to I really like uh, rock. Now I like metalcore. 
it's quite clear now that oh, I'm starting to really like metal. So let's go back and you know let's do some research and and find out about like obviously bands that I should be listening to. And obviously, then you know you search on oh, greatest metal albums of all time, and obviously Raining Blood is in it. And I can't obviously I'm talking like what seven years ago now, so I can't remember the exact website that I would have seen it on. But of course, when Raining Blood was mentioned, they were talking first and foremost about Angel of Death. And they're on about this absurdly long double kick drum run that you wouldn't, believe, you have to hear to believe kind of thing. So obviously, yeah, and I'll check it. I'll check it out out of like morbid curiosity and to my absolute astonishment. Sam, I mean, just just talk us through that Dave Lombard, the Dave Lombard, not just on this album because we're going to get there, but uh, in on this what three and a half minutes? Uh, just talk us through Dave Lombard. I mean, man. Um. It's 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 just the most <laughs> incredible uh, display of stamina and speed on a metal album I've ever heard, and still have ever have never heard. Um, because you listen to th- you listen to modern deathcore and metal and stuff. There's points where it slows down, it changes tempo. This is the the the, the drumming equivalent of watching a Ferrari um, race at like a sort of like a, a hundred meter sprint or something. It is just absolutely extraordinary the 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 pace and the consistency that he plays with um sim- simply put i think i think that the the the, the drum the, the the kick pedal fill at the end of Randy blood i think it's the greatest drum fill ever i think i i really think that it's the greatest moment of metal drumming ever in terms of what it did um because at that time in 1986 kick, um, double kick pedals were a novelty they were like Drummers like John Bonham and um, Ginger Baker would put them put extra drums on stage, just sort of like put their dick out on stage and say how big, like how big and expensive and great they are. But they'd never fucking use them. Um, it, it never re- really, really started to change until um, Van Allen brought out a song in 1984 called "Hot for Teacher," and it's got that incredible drum intro on there um, where he starts using the double kick pedals and things like that, and 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 and. and it started to kick off this sort of use of double kick pedals in sort of heavier metal and, sp- and bands started to really experiment. Um, Metallica were using double kick pedals on sort of Ride the Lightning. Um, and what Dave Lombardo managed to do is in- tighten and intensify it and play it at such a pace where his feet were moving as fast as, as, as anyone's hands could have moved at that particular, particular point. And, to play on his own without playing a drum beat to that to that level is extraordinary. So there's a couple of things that that that, that make Dave Lombardo's drum performance exceptional. And number one is that when you typically play a thrash beat, you tend to you tend to hit the hi hat at the same time you hit the kick pedal, and you tend to take your hand off the hi hat usually when you hit the when you hit the snare. So essentially, your hand gets a bit of a rest every every beat, right? So it's on and off, on and off, on and off. Dave Lombardo is playing. Um, one-handed 16th notes constantly, which means his hand never leaves the hi-hat, which means that to play at that speed and to that level of stamina is genuinely extraordinary. Um, And on top of that, for a lot of these sections, his feet are playing 32 second notes, which is that thunderous machine gun, like sort of sound that he's able to do with his feet. Um, and he's able to do that consistently for several minutes. And then when it comes to the conclusion 
of that song when they're playing the guitar solo and he's playing that one-handed 16th note on the right cymbal just absolutely pummeling the thrash beat he takes all of his hands off and that first few seconds is just his feet and then over the top of it he plays that ridiculously ominous tom fill that goes dun 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 all yeah. the while while the drums are underneath thundering um, the kick drums are underneath thundering it makes this sound so incredibly tense and epic and sort of builds up to this final riff and flurry that is just absolutely extraordinary but across the album it's it's the pace the ferocity and the goddamn consistency but i i've never even seen another drummer that can play at that pace as long or as consistently as dave lombardo I've never seen it. Um, the like the the stamina is legitimately extraordinary, and I've seen other I've seen other bands play Slayer songs, and the drummer always takes the easy corners. They never play all the hi hats. They duck out of some of the ride cymbal stuff. Dave Lombardo is playing every single note available to him as a drummer. Every single one. He doesn't let off a single beat. He never slows down. Even in the Angel of Death slow riff, it's the, that ride cymbal's just constantly going. He never plays a half beat. It's always fully matched. His wrist work is just extraordinary. And then to top it off with that drum fill right at the end, um, it just it just opened my eyes as a drummer, and I, I, I know that it did the same for millions of others. I mean, he would need to be... I mean, obviously, drummers need to be uh, fit, because of the physical intensity, regardless of a lot of the time, regardless of who they're drumming for, but he would literally need to be in tip-top shape to go on tour with Slayer doing this. Like physically, he would need to be in real peak condition, uh, and the the demands on his body from this album and from touring this album, um, just absolutely amazing. I'm I'm so glad that they never try that, unless I'm forgetting a song. I don't think I am. I'm so glad that they never try to repeat that seven seconds from Angel of Death. No. Um, what, they, what, they, what they do is when Dave Lombardo had played with Slayer, I think it's a great train that he doesn't anymore. Um, but he extends it. <laughs> when they play it live, he plays it longer. So he extends, he extends the length of time before he kicks in with the toms and sort of soaks in the applause with his hands sort of pushed up towards the air. It's extraordinary to watch. Um, but yeah, I agree. There's moments where they've stopped for drum fills. You know, there's that part on War Ensemble where it cuts to yeah. him doing a couple of fills and stuff. But not like this. Not like this. It's the fact that you show it to somebody and then you wait for him to hear it. And you say that was with his feet, you know. And he's yeah. like, what? Yeah. Like that, 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 just that first few seconds that he can do that with his feet. It's, it's, it's incredible coordination and incredible stamina. Um, it's, the, it's, it's, it's the all-time great metal drumming performance. In, in terms of power and consistency, uh, it just has absolutely everything. Nothing comes close to Dave Lombardo's work on, ra- work on Rain and Blood. It's just metal perfection. A computer couldn't have replicated what he what he done at that particular time. It's, it's astonishing. It really, really is. From this point, there's this kind of blink and you'll miss it attitude <laughs> applied yeah. to Rain and Blood. Uh, and, you know, it's I feel like it's specifically applied to piece by piece and necrophobic because they're both played at such a furious ridiculous pace and intensity nothing has sounded like the opening three tracks from this album since nothing ever 
for me. No, in terms in terms of in terms of the pace and the way that it just just completely there's no letting up whatsoever, absolutely none whatsoever. This piece by piece and necrophobic, they're just absurd, utterly yeah. utterly utterly absurd, um, and an incredible blend, incredible blend of just pace and ferocity. And Necrophobic, I think, is the fastest, like the fastest thrash metal song ever recorded, still, or something like that. It's like yeah. 249 beats a minute, or something. I think that it's supposed to be. Uh, how is how is that even? How is it even? How is it even possible? I, I just I just don't understand it. The 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 pace and the riff work is just spellbinding. Truly is. One of the most underrated moments on the whole album happens on Jesus Saves, and it's fucking amazing. I love it so much. Um, there's this... Um, actually, no, is it... I can't remember. One second. Is it Jesus Saves, or is it fucking... Um, the the track that drops before it? Let me just quickly remind myself, but look at the track list, because I think I've... Um, Written a note wrong here. Um, Altar of Sacrifice into Jesus Saves. Altar of Sacrifice. Right, that's it. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> I fucking love this so much. There's like, around the two minute 20 mark, there's like this really fucking wincing, like shredding solo. From that point, if you listen out for it, you'll notice the track just starts getting quite evidently slower. And towards the very, very last few seconds of the song, it almost drops into like this straight up like doom pattern. And then it perfectly flicks into the follow into the following song. It's fucking incredible. I love it. It's so brilliantly written. Like uh, Jesus, Jesus, uh, altar of sacrifice drops so amazingly into Jesus says do you know which bit I'm on about where the riff, yeah, I do. where, where the riff, halftime riff right, fades right into the next song yeah and it's almost like a doom riff and it, it fades fucking brilliantly into uh, Jesus saves it is so so fucking brilliant it's what no one really talks about because obviously there's so much greatness on this album no one really talks about that moment a lot and I think that it's so criminally underrated and, you know and I don't I didn't really hear much of that kind of stuff in nineteen eighty six that I've heard. These kind of fadings and follow ons again. Not no. that I've heard. Kind of an island. I mean this album is an island anyway, but even even that little small tiny nuance there, really, really fascinating, unusual, and so, so fucking brilliantly written. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. I mean most bands would have had that as one song <laughs> as yeah. well. Um, Slayer wrote two entire, entirely different sets of lyrics and had it just to reinforce the pace and the continuation of it. And I think those as a pair are absolutely fantastic. Once they establish themselves through piece by piece, um, piece by piece of necrophile because thrash, they sort of take it down a notch, don't they? And sort of reinforce yeah. the heaviness and evil um, of uh, Altar of Sacrifice and Jesus Saves before... Um, for criminally insane and 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 reborn and everything like that, um, it's I, I, I agree with you. Um, it reinforces the complexity of the songwriting. It's not just a, a purely bash and thrash album. There's some real complexity and incredible riff work on this album, and some of the way that some of the songs are structured together um, has been maximised. It's fantastic. 
Now, from here, the album really doesn't fluctuate much, which usually I would use as a criticism. But in this instance, I really don't mean it in that way. Because the formula shifts very little in terms of um, criminally insane, reborn, uh, epidemic is one of them as well. That that four run, that, that four song run, that three song run, sorry, is very much them just like nailing this incredibly punching, fast uh, thrash rhythm. And we, we've barely spoke about Tom Araya. On, on this on, on this chat, uh, which is a so in my opinion a disservice to him because I think yeah, crime. He's, he's absolutely fucking brilliant on this album, Tom Araya. Uh, he's and specifically on the way on the bookend of bookends of the album on Angel of Death and Raining Blood, Tom Araya is is something else. The way he punches through those lyrics, obviously we'll get to Raining Blood at the end, but. Do you think I'm being overly harsh in terms of just being like, like from from Jesus Saves? Really, the album sticks this thematic blueprint of just fucking the highest quality of thrash you will find. A little bit only because are you are you including post mortem in that? No, no, post mortem. Okay, post mortem. Right. I'm including criminally insane, reborn, and epidemic. All right. Okay. I agree that 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 section is the we are a thrash band. We do this better than everybody else. Here's different variations of the thrash blueprint. I agree. I particular. I, I personally love Epidemic though. I love the riff on Epidemic. Oh, I love the three uh, songs. It's just they don't. There's not really a lot of variation there. They they're just brilliant thrash metal songs. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I get that. I get that. I think I think I like the criminally insane changes the tempo a little bit, doesn't it? It slows it down a little bit. Um, has those variations where they actually. It sounds like if they really wanted to, they'd have enough. They'd have had enough riffs on this album to make a cracking doom metal record. If yeah. they really wanted to, just really slow it down and do this sludging, powerful mid-tempo metal. And this would probably be it, like we'd probably be talking about it as a great album even then. Um, but yeah, there. It's another three just <laughs> relatively peerless thrash songs, just absolutely incredible. Um, like I said, reborn neck epidemic are some particular favourites of mine. But I agree, they they found the blueprint, and it's it's all about the collective at that point. Um, sort of ramming it down your throat as often as possible. Let's talk about post mortem because it's one of the more obvious tempo shifts. Post mortem in the record, real essence of groove about the start yeah, of post mortem, about the start man. of post mortem, which I think is a really, really necessary addition to this album. Just adds that little bit of extra flavour, although it didn't need to, because by this point, we're on song 10, I believe, post-mortem. No, post-mortem's number nine. Um, and it's the greatest thrash metal album ever written. So this little this little punch of flavour wasn't necessary, but I love the tempo shift that runs at the start of post-mortem and the way it really fucking grooves. Fucking brilliant. I completely agree. It also shows off um, sort of the, the, the drum fills at slower paces that I really, really like um, that allows them to show show off their ability to sort of change groove and things like that. And I actually love the pace change at the end where it speeds up yeah. and you get that um, that long kick drum while, while, while the riff's playing. The dun, 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 and it sort of increases into that semi-thrash riff, that dun, 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 sort of riff that... Um, 
the Dave Lombardo's doing in the background of, of the songs. And then it obviously leads off into oh. the concluding number. Oh. Um, but uh, it's, yeah, uh, which, is, which is also, again, um, that's, that's a brilliant moment, that is when you get to yeah. the post-mortem. I almost love playing post-mortem before I listen to Rain in Blood because I just love the way that it just the immediately fade. fades in. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I think post mortem is 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 incredible in its own right, uh, absolutely. But yeah, it fades in absolutely gorgeous. It's one of the uh, one of the all time great moments in heavy metal history. Is that that first minute of Rainy oh, Blood? Oh my god, mate! I mean, it's so fucking great. Just the way that post mortem blends into the sound of rain and thunder on Rainy Blood is is fucking. Honestly, man, I'm talking about it now with a smile on my face, man. It's so brilliant. <laughs> it is so class. I mean, you know, that riff that opens around, mate, just we've done, we said this before, that will live forever. Yeah. That will live forever. And then the way when the fucking Dave Lombardo really comes in. Oh, my God. I mean, the amount of times me and you have been uh, in a metal club and that song comes on and it's just like a fucking sea of swinging necks. <laughs> like, just just wild hair strands flying around everywhere because it, there's the way it's written is so just fucking banging, thumping, um, drums, uh, your ears felt like they fucking explode from within, the guitars, really technical and wincing. Raining Blood, um, the first time I heard Raining Blood, I was 15 years old, uh, so I was nowhere near a guitar hero, mate. I was nowhere near a metal fan by this point, but I was a massive guitar hero fan, uh, and I used to play the shit out of Guitar Hero 3. I, God, that game was so great. And Raining Blood was one of the songs, and even when I was 15 and I wasn't into metal and I wasn't really paying attention much, I just wanted to learn to be good to the song, be good at the songs. That on Expert was fucking solid. And you had to be so, so absurdly quick. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine playing this shit for real. Like, on guitar, here, how it's absurd how quick you need to be. Imagine fucking Kerry King trying to shred this shit. Um, amazing, bro. Amazing. Um, and a, a quick word for mate Jeff Hanneman who is uh, tragically, tragically missed and such a vital, vital component to everything that Slayer mastered in the, um, in the late 80s to the early 90s. I absolutely agreed. Uh, people associate Kerry King more with Slayer because of his famous appearance and stuff, but Jeff Hanneman wrote a large portion of the riffs and a lot of the lyrics as well. It was a really large writing process. Um, but, but yeah, while we're talking about all the plethoras of stuff that we talk about Angel of Death. I could absolutely say exactly the same thing about Raining Blood here. Um, this is perhaps one of the greatest metal riffs ever. It's top five, might be top three, just in terms of how, how iconic it is, how brilliant it, it builds up those those trio of drum hits before the um, before the first riff kicking in, the way that it goes back to it halfway through the song and it's harmonised that literally every riff is iconic. Every single one is incredibly famous. The, the, the runs that happen as the pace changes, the secondary riff before the verse and Tom Araya starts, um, starts his vocal line. Um, the, one of my all-time favourite riffs as well is the, is the riff that, 
that kicks in before the second plane of the main riff. So it's the one that's like... Absolutely love that riff because then Dave Lombardo starts playing underneath with with death metal kick drums and stuff. And I think it is absurd. Also, I've said this to you every time this song comes on while I've been drunk and we've spoken about it. I'm convinced this is the first breakdown ever is on this song. The first one. Impossibly. Uh, 1980 fucking six. Dudden, 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 dudden. And then it comes in with that drum fill, comes in with that drum beat and that little dudden, 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 Mate, I've heard that in every Deathcore song since. Yeah. That is the blueprint. That is the base of every great breakdown. <laughs> That's like, like that breakdown at 20 years is after the burial. You know, that's yeah. what that is. That is at its core, that com- that juxtaposition of dark, heavy, slow beats with the, um, with the riff work over the top of it. It's just, it's metal perfection and it goes away as quickly as it comes, but then it leaves that incredible, incredible sort of rainfall at the end, which is sort of with the thunder and the lightning. It's just, the pathetic fallacy is just perfect. Um, everything about this song is just incredibly put together. It's beautifully written. The way that it's structured, every riff is in locks perfectly together and transitions incredibly. And it is just a perfect transition of some of the greatest, some of the greatest riff work we've ever heard in metal just sort of thrown together in one song it is astonishing i mean if you if you tell me your favorite song this is raining blood or angel of death there's no wrong answer but it's it's one of those two because one of these two are the greatest metal songs ever for their for their era is just absurd and you mentioned guitar hero guitar hero gave a second life to slayer almost it re-breathed life back into slayer uh, because of the popularity of the song on guitar hero opened up a new generation of fans to their music and I'm not saying it's the sole reason, but I think it's definitely helped why a lot of young people got into Slayer early on. I know yeah. there's a lot of people, not, not just you, that got into Slayer when they first heard that. In fact, um, I met Kerry King in 2007 at a music live event, and a friend of mine brought his Guitar Hero controller for Kerry King to sign. That's awesome. Which he, which he, which he laughed and signed, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. Um, I hope that's hanging on his wall somewhere. I, I fucking I hope love... so. That's awesome. Because like, a Guitar Hero controller, <laughs> it's just brilliant. It's perfect, isn't it? Yeah. Like the, the, he carried that thing around the whole festival for fucking like all day. It was incredible. Um, but but yeah, like that breathed a new life in it, and it also points to the again the transcendence of that song. And a great riff is a great riff. I mean, it's not just it's a great fucking melody. That raining blood riff. It's just instantly iconic and singable and catchy. Um. It's just, it sticks in your head and then you combine it with the heaviness and the, the thrash work that the band did alongside it. It is just perfect. And then you combine that with the demonic lyrics and everything about it. It is one of the all-time great metal songs or to conclude one of the all-time great metal albums. It is just, it's Slayer, it's Raining Blood. It's perfect. Album lasts 28 minutes. You can listen to it twice in your lunch hour. Um, it's... The harshest. You can go and fight your co-workers directly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's brutal. It's intelligent. It's mesmerising. It's um, um, cleverly put together. It's lyrically potent. It's lyrically poignant. This is everything that thrash metal can never ever be again. 
this is. This is everything that thrash metal could never, ever reach again. They will never, I will go out on a limb now and say that even in 200 years when we're long fucking dead and gone, there will never be a thrash metal album ever written that reaches this. This is just another plane of existence of ahead of its time and ahead of its uh, contemporaries in terms of thrash metal. What a fucking absurd absurd album i completely agree it's the it's the fourth greatest metal album of all time people yeah. might be listening to this wondering why why there are three better i'm going to hopefully we'll attempt to explain that um in the coming weeks and stuff but really there is never there is not another album that is better at one particular brand of metal that this album is better at thrash metal if that makes sense um this is the best album of its genre by far. The gap between Slayer and the next best thrash metal album is the largest gap among the greatest of any type of metal album list you ever want to put together. Um, it is the greatest metal drumming performance of all time. It features two of the greatest five metal, metal or extreme metal songs, at least songs of all time. It easily features some of the greatest guitar work I've ever heard in my life. It was immediately controversial and legendary the moment it came out. It is 29 minutes, and in that 29 minutes, less than half an hour, which I think is one and a half oceans of slumber songs, it manages to change the entire face of thrash metal in, in 29 minutes. 29 minutes. It is absolutely absurd. You couldn't cook a chicken in the amount of time that Slayer changed the whole nature of a genre. Um, and it has obviously transcended metal and has propelled Slayer to legendary status, propelled Rick Rubin to legendary status among metal fans and is absolutely well-deserving of the, of the place on our Mount Rushmore here. If there was a, if, if it was a literal mountain, this album would be etched alongside the three others that are about to join it without any shadow of a doubt at all. What a brilliant place to leave off, sir. Um, we're going to move on to album review now, but again, do stick around after that. we got my interview with uh, Barney Greenway coming at the end of the show. But before that, Sam, uh, new Fit for a King album. It's called The Path. It is out on the 18th of September on Solid State Records. It's the band's sixth studio album. And before we get into chat here, I do think people forget sometimes they're big Fit for a King are rattle off some stats here 31 million streams on spotify in 2019 uh, tw- yeah. 20 20 million all-time youtube views uh, they're absolutely one of modern metalcore's biggest hitters and i must say of the group that they broke through within the early 10s they are much much better than a lot of them so i'm talking about the likes of um let's think bless the fall Memphis May Fire, Like Moths to Flames, uh, Miss May I. I. I think Fit for a King are fairly better than all of those bands. And there's a lot of... I mean, metalcore is almost treated like a dirty word in this day and age, and that is because it has strayed so far away and uh, been substituted down to such a lowest lowest common denominator form from its greatness at the beginning with the likes of fucking caving, etc. But I I do think Fit for a King are are one of the the good ones at this new contemporary, what me and you refer to as modern metalcore. 
I think that it's unfortunate for the path to come out the same year that Currents The Way Ends, Ghost Inside self-titled album and Polaris Is The Death Of Me has come out, Sam. What do you think of that statement? I think that's very fair. And also Trip Misery Signals, uh, last album in here as well. Oh, man, ultraviolet, ultraviolet, man. Really good shit, really good shit. Um, I, 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 agree, I agree with your statement, yeah. I feel, and I, by the way, just to get this up, I like this record. Um, but I feel like a lot of this album uh, you could take highlights from and chuck into a breakdown reel on YouTube. Or that, that I think a hardcore Korean guy where he beats up his bedroom kind of stuff. Um, and I, I don't necessarily mean that as, as a criticism, but I think that um, this album is it would be enjoyed best if you pick a, if you pick parts of it out in isolation. There is a middle section on this album that I really struggle to listen to. Um, I'm not sure whether you, I'm not sure whether you picked up on this. Um, from like song three to seven, <laughs> I, I, I started terribly worrying about where this album was going. Um, yeah, um, did you, did you annihilation, well? the path, and locked in my head in that middle part, and not not terrific. Um, I, I I I agree with you. I I agree that the the at its peak, there are some brilliant highlights. Yeah, of this album. Um. I think the opening of Face of Hate, that riff is fantastic. I got like, remember when Bullet were good vibes? That, yeah. <laughs> that was my initial thought. Breaking the Mirror again opens, opens, opens really nicely. Um, after that, it tails off. Um, the path is not great. It's a six out of 10 mid-tempo song where the chorus doesn't necessarily grab me as much as a song like that should. Um, I thought... I thought Profit was good. I liked the balance of the electronic and the sort of pounding beat that was the that was the introduction of the album. I thought the best had the best breakdown on that album so far when I heard Profit. I was thinking this is this is going better. But then Locked in My Head came along and that felt like it's a bit eye, it's a bit to... eye prevailing it that locked in my it head. It was, yeah. And it felt like that sort of in Hearts Wake album that we reviewed a couple oh, of months oh, ago. Oh yeah, mate, the less said about that the better. Yeah, where it actually felt like all right, this feels like the um the Spotify grab. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, or the Radio 1 grab, as me and you would say, but this wouldn't be played on Radio 1. But you know what I mean? Um, I thought God of Fire, I actually remember thinking, where's this come from? And why wasn't this earlier in the album? Because the way that this starts, that, that brilliant riff yeah. is superb. And the finish is disgustingly good. Brilliant breakdown. The end of God of Fire is absolutely fantastic. That was the opener. And then it went into... Um, face of how to break in the mirror i think the album would have just felt better i do actually think that um god of fire does remind me a little bit of worldwide suicide from kali yuga yeah i think that's fair i think that's fair because when you were hearing that you were like this album's going to be like extraordinary it's going to be really, really good and then obviously it tails off as well um then it goes to stockholm and all that intensity is just sort of dissipated and same with louder voice now i don't know if you picked up on this but there's an old native american adage Right. Uh, I, I'm really sorry, but um, this is going to sound really strange. But there's an old Native American adage where it says, uh, a, a man tells his son, there are two wolves uh, on your shoulder. and uh, One is hatred and evil and uh, desire and aggression and all this sort of stuff. And the other one is hope and justice and kindness and stuff. Um, 
and one will eat you. And he says, what do you mean? It's like, which one, which one will eat me? Which one, which one, which one will I become? It says the one you feed. And, and that's the, that's like a Native American expression. Like, you know, you feed the, the good wolf and then leave the bad instincts. And this, this louder voice track starts off with, there are two voices in the world. One is fear and one is love. And, um, whichever one you listen to is the way that your path will go. And it just felt, it was just a rip off of that. Um, just in like this kind of cheesy sort of way. So immediately my eyes were sort of rolling um, a little nice. bit. And then the song, the song itself wasn't great. Um, and then Vendetta felt like um, a bit of an average song to end the album on. Like I kept, I kept waiting for it to go somewhere else. Um, there were some terrific highlights in this. There was, there's, there's a couple of really nice solos, a couple of brilliant breakdowns, a couple of fantastic riffs and decent choruses. And I think this would be a terrific EP four track EP where you put the highlights together. We'd be raving about it, I think. Um, but it kind of sounds like they run out of ideas uh, about the other 40% of this album. It doesn't get out of third gear. And I agree with you that it, it doesn't match the elite sort of metal bands that have come out this year, such as Polaris, Misery Signals, Currents, Ghost Inside. And then previous, re- um, previous records from the year before, like Counterparts, for example. Um, it just doesn't, doesn't hit those heights or even North Lane. The the bar is so high for metalcore now that you can't you can't get away with this stuff anymore. You, like I don't I don't I don't I don't mean that to be like cruel, but you can't write albums that sound like this anymore because this is 2010. This this is. Um, you've got to be more complex. You've got to be faster. You've got to be more um, intricate. The songs have got to be better. Um, the breakdowns have got to be got to be harder or more often. You can't you can't do this sort of stuff because at times it feels like the foot has been taken off the pedal a little bit and it it's good it's it, I agree with you I like this album too um, and there are points of this album that I really really like but it's not enough. I in a lot of sense I'm with you man I mean that three song run of Annihilation the Path and Profit you know for me it's fine it's just I'm not sure it's the right term it's like it feels like a bit uninspired. Um, and by the time the solo appears unlocked in my head, I'm just fucking begging for some variation. By this point, I'm like, anything, just do something. And then the solo comes in, I'm like, right, okay. And in terms of its inclusion of solos and certain drum techniques, uh, this record, I, I think, um, takes a lot more nods to straight up metal than I expected, actually, which I think is interesting. Now, a god of fire, god of fire, like uh, you mentioned. I'm not actually massive on it, but there is this really quite interesting shift in tonality, that techno beat that runs through it, and and that's where I start feeling like, right, okay, my interest is peaking again. I'm not massive on this, but my interest is peaking, and that does signal somewhat of a tonal shift for the album, which fuck me was needed. Uh, I actually really like Stockholm. You said you weren't massive on it. The fucking tuning of that album, of that album, sorry, that track, fucking hell. And um, the tuning is so low, and you know I love I love my low tunings. The rhythm's fucking scorching. <laughs> um, it's more of a nod to the stuff they were doing on the last record, Dark Skies, which I, I really like. Uh, and in fact, actually, I think the first two tracks and the second half of this album really save it. Uh, I think the melodies on Louder Voice are great, and the chorus is fucking it's hard. I'm a big fan. Of, I'm a big fan of the gang vocal that brings back the riff and the vocals back into song towards the. Uh, the final verse slash chorus. I'm always a fan of uh, tracks that open with a breakdown. Uh, when uh, it's a vendetta, when the screams, "This is my vendetta!" Massive breakdown hits. 
all about that. Um, track 387, mate, almost ruins the album for me. Really flat, uninspired. But when I consider the start and end to this album in isolation, I actually like this. I think this is a good record. And as a whole, this is a very solid, good metalcore record, but it doesn't reach the heights of some of the real, real greatness we've seen this year. Although, saying that, texturally, Fit for a King really are quite different to Currents, Polaris and the Ghost Inside, aren't they? You know, yeah, they, they, yeah, they yeah, really they are onto the same. So, so you know, I mean, I mean, so it, it feels like I'm kind of like <laughs> contradicting myself because I was the one that made the point. However, I know that textually they aren't the same, but they they do kind of sit in the same battlefield, don't they? So, so those they are, are they those are their peers and contemporaries in this music in this genre, though, even though they, they sound different. And there's going to be an album that we're going to talk about next week. Uh, which I'm pretty sure you're already thinking and know what it is. Uh, again, uh-huh. texture texturally unfair to compare Fit for a King to them, but they kind of blow the king. They kind of blow Fit for a King out of the fucking water, don't they? To be fair, actually, we're doing two, so you might not know which one I'm on about. Um, oh, I think I, I think I do. <laughs> yeah, I, I th- yeah, no, I think you do. Um, is it, the, the, the album we're talking about is the iceberg to Fit for a King's Titanic, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, with all that said. I like this. Erase that middle section, and I, and I really like this album. Unfortunately, that middle section does exist, so it's just a good record that I would recommend if you're massive on metalcore. It's not going to do anything special for you. I think Dark Skies is a better record than this, which is what Fit for a King released in 2018. Uh, but this isn't uh, offensive. It's perfectly fine. Good record. Kind of hope for more, but this stands out uh, like a sore thumb compared to some of the real, real high quality that we've come across this year. Completely agree. It doesn't quite match up. And that is where we draw episode 50 of the Noise Podcast to an end. But do we? No, we do not. Because coming up now is my interview with Barney <laughs> fucking Greenway from Napalm Death. So excited to get everyone to hear this because uh, it really meant a lot to me to get a chance to be able to do it. And uh, Barney was such a tremendous interview and he's such a fucking really, really cool person. Um, next week, on the Noise Podcast, we are going to be reviewing the new albums from Alpha Wolf and Nasty. Going to be quite the episode, that is. Because uh, I've heard both, and they're both fucking great. <laughs> um, so I'm really, really, really looking forward to next week. But I hope you've stuck around uh, to listen to the Barney Greenway interview. Thank you very much, every listen to the Noise Podcast over these last 50 episodes has really meant something personal to me and Sam, and we thank you very much. Uh, my interview with Barney Greenway is right now. We will be back in a week's time doing new albums from Alpha Wolf and Nasty. Thank you for listening. Stick with us. We're going to be keep going for another 50 episodes, we hope, and so on. Uh, we love you very much, and we'll see you next week. Bye. So I'm now joined by Barney Greenway of Napalm Death. Barney, how are you getting on? I'm all right, mate, yeah. It's... Uh... We could almost, I could almost be speaking to myself by the sound of that accent, you know. Well, not quite. You're a bit more black country, I suspect, but, uh, Absolutely, you know. Absolutely, mate. I was going to say to you, um, as much as I adore Napalm Death and your history, the one thing I've always thought, if only not, was you being a Villa fan. But I forgive you, mate, no problem. Yeah, no, no, no. We probably best not get into that if you're, a, if you support one of the black country teams. But no, I'm joking. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, I don't give a shit about any of that stuff anyway, you know, so Rudy, if I'm honest, you yeah. know, so. Well, me neither, man. But, uh, I think, 
where we both grew up is actually a brilliant place to start because I'm from Wolverhampton, as you would, I guess you would have figured it out sooner or later. So yeah. I'm, uh, I'm just about 20 miles away from where you grew up. Um, and I remember reading in Ozzy Osbourne's autobiography that he mentioned a big part of his desire to become like, you know, a rock and roll star or just, just chase this dream lifestyle was part of how much he disliked his surroundings growing up in Birmingham post-war was like really like grey, gloomy city. Yeah. I know you were like 15, 20 years behind Ozzy. Uh, but would, yeah. did you say, would you say you felt similarly at all? No, mate, you, you know, honestly, I, I, I will say that uh, for the first part of what the quote that you said there, you know, I, I never gave a shit about being a, uh, any kind of a star, you know, or, or, or revered person at all. You know, my, 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 my sort of introduction into Napalm Death was fucking by accident. You know what I mean? I, I, I really loved the band. I knew the guys before I joined. I mean, I was there back, really back in the day, you know, around the time when Scum was being recorded. I, I knew Mickey first, first and foremost. Uh, I knew Nick Bullen and, and, and like all the guys on the original album. While that album was being recorded, I was actually in the pub. Uh, where um, they came into, you know, after they'd done part of the session. So I was kind of read, but never, never in a million years did I anticipate that uh, like two or three years later, I'd actually be in the band, you know, um, I, 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 I did a couple of bands because I started, I started doing the vocals that I did just purely because I wanted to. And then, um, and then I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And, um, uh, Mickey and Shane kind of knew what I could do with my vocals and asked me to join. Had had it not been Napalm, I, I there's it stands a fair chance I would have not have pursued, you know, trod the path that I have done because to be honest here, it's only ever Napalm I wanted to be. Yeah. Because if it was another band, arguably it just wouldn't have had the same purpose for me. You know, in terms of not only the music, but but the ethos and what it was all about. You know, that's very much a driver for me. You know, that three sixty napalm thing. So, I was, I'm not, I was, I am not your archetypal professional musician. I was never. Uh, that was not me, and I certainly wasn't interested in, in being a fucking star. To be honest, I, <laughs> I, I, that's not me. You know, I, I, that's not me. It doesn't drive me at all. That kind of thing. You know, um, I, um. And as regards, I mean, like Ozzy's from Aston, you know, so yeah. Great Bar's just up the road, you know, yeah. it's only a couple of miles up the road. So, um, and um, so I, yeah, of course, you know, you, I think always as I think human instinct is you, if you grow up somewhere in there for a long time, you, you wish to escape your surroundings just to see other things, basically, you know. Did I was I really that depressed about Great Bar that I wanted to um, escape? And I, I, I would be lying if if I said if I said it, I was. You know, yes, I had itchy feet, and yes, I wanted to get out and about. And you know, actually, in the in the music scene that I was referring to, we used to travel as 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 people that followed the music. You know, we hitchhiking was a big thing. You know, when I was when I was you know, in and around the sort of hardcore punk scene, you know, back then people, you would hitchhike to go to gigs and stuff like that, you know, which, um, which horrifies quite a few people. <laughs> yeah. It can be a little bit problematic, you know, but, um, that's, that's what we used to do because we couldn't afford to, you know, 
pay train fare and stuff like that necessarily. So, um, yeah, you know, I, but I, I, not not the same thing as as Ozzy, you know. But I understand that, you know, Aston at that time was um, quite deprived. You know, it was very poor. You know, my 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 family actually comes from the Aston Newtown area. You know, my mum and and they were when they were kids around the same time as Ozzy. You know. It, it was it was rough, you know. It was a rough life, you know. Um, so I can understand, you know, why he says what he said, you know. How frustrating is it for you that the same, more or less, the same issues that you were, you know, talking about thirty years ago are still prevalent today? In fact, some of them even more so. Yeah, I mean, you know, you I'm frustrated in the in the wider sense that the world hasn't improved in terms of understanding what it means to be a human being you know that would be my frustration really but i also accept that you know the world people people make a point of saying isn't the world shitty today and my reply to that is yeah but it's it's always been shitty to a degree you know and whatever's going on now well you know if i use the example if if you'd been born just over a hundred years ago and you were you were of teenage young adult sort of age and you were born in northern Europe, there's a chance you would have been sent off to fight some ridiculous murderous game of chess, you know, in yeah. in, 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 Fran- in, in in France and Belgium, you know. Um so there's always been shitty things about the world. You know, human beings still haven't learned despite with time. Um, they haven't learned the lessons of how to treat other human beings, you know. So it, it is frustrating in that sense. But you, 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 you keep on keeping on, you know, and you, you, you try from 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 the perspective of napalm death. You try within your capacity to make a difference, you know, albeit you know with the relative size of what you are as an entity, as a band, you know. So. I remember, I mean, there's loads of fascinating stories about Napalm Death, even before you joined the band, but there's one specific story that I read about while you uh, while you were in the band uh, a couple of years after you joined. Um, and you know what? You, you can tell me if it's false or not, uh, but it's that amazing that I wouldn't be surprised if it's not true, to be honest, because it's one of those things I couldn't believe reading. Uh, you toured South Africa uh, during 93. I read that you were on talk shows promoting the concept of equality, but that was the time where South Africa just started to reach out of apartheid. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. were on talk shows um, You were on talk shows talking about promoting equality, and there were like calls into the talk show of like Nazis threatening you, saying like, wait till you yeah. leave the studio, we're gonna fucking knife you and that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, is that yeah, true? It's true? It's true, yeah, it is true, yeah. So so uh, actually it was one it was national radio. It was one specific show. Right, okay. And and I, it, you know, to to say that to say it was all Nazis, it, it would not necessarily be accurate, you know, because um you know, it was Afrikaans people, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna smear it all as Nazis, you know, but obviously they came through a particular system, which they had become acclimatized to and accustomed to. So the, 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 the thought of an equal nation, you know, a rainbow nation as it's, as it's called, you know, sometimes, um, actually put the fear of life into people you know so they got very antsy you know when 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 the concept of equality which you know is what 
what um, what I would like to see in this world, what I think a lot of people would like to see in this world. So, yeah, they got very defensive. But, you know, uh, uh, and some undoubtedly were, like Terra Blanche's, uh, who was a uh, an agitator, who was a white farmer, you know, who was a neo-fascist guy, you know. So there are, uh, undoubtedly there were people from that calling in. But I, I suspect that some of it was just everyday people, you know, like really fucking annoyed, you know, that yeah. this guy was talking about... Uh, you know the 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 death throes of a system that they had become so accustomed to. So yeah, but it doesn't excuse, of course, the 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 violent verbal violence. You know, which was fucking extreme. You know what I mean? And uh, um, you know, people might say I'm a little bit naive of me, but some of it was so absurd and outlandish that i was just laughing you know yeah. and i i was just oh i had this kind of fuck you attitude you know to where i didn't really give a shit you know but you know if if those threats would have become real you know then it would have been a quite quite could have been quite a tricky situation for me you know but um uh, but nothing happened in the end but yeah it's true you know it's true all that all that's all true you know interested to get your viewpoint on this uh, sometimes i've had this you know debate with people where the, somewhere along the line and i'm not sure whether it's just always been this way or maybe i just have only recently noticed somewhere along the line people seem to be taking the concept of race as like a political issue and not a human rights issue uh, for, yeah, exa- for, yeah. for example uh, the black lives matter movement uh, you know, some people refuse to re- refer to Black Lives Matter as a political movement, but I don't yeah. understand. How is that? How is that political? It's, you know it's what? A human I would rights agree. issue. You know what? I would absolutely agree with you. And the, and the thing is, is that I've always I've always said this. You know, in context of napalm. You know, I I, I just just to just to digress a little bit from the main thrust. Please, please. So so. So I, I've always said in my interviews, I understand why people call Napalm a political band. You know, I, I, you could say quite accurately that my sort of whole formative, um, uh, sort of view on things and approaches is, 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 is very much leans toward the, towards the left. And, you know, so in that sense, this is, is political, you know, a, a political context. All that being said, you know, I also think that Napalm is apolitical as well because of what you've just said, you know, because we, I understand, we understand as a band that mainstream politics means nothing if it doesn't help people, you know, if it doesn't achieve a more equal world for human beings and, and other, other sentient beings as well, you know, because let's face it, a lot of mainstream politics throughout history, recorded history has been tokenism you know yeah. token gestures yeah. and stuff so so in that respect when you when you take that idea into black lives matter movement extinction rebellion uh the animal liberation from you know many many different things i could mention those are human interest groups i would argue and not political groups you know because if the idea is for the liberation of peoples that by default is a human issue yeah, of course. It's, it's that simple. You yeah, know? yeah. That's it. I mean, that is it, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, really. I mean, I, if if more people were to, I mean, I, I was looking into the staring into the looking glass kind of thing and trying to use up all your genie wishes. But if if that mindset could just be more widespread, I just you know imagine how many problems we could just eradicate in the yeah. matter of a week. You know. 
see, there's 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 a there's a particular example of this, you know. I think that's so. There's the phrase politically correct. So you hear that bandied yeah. about snow tomorrow, you know. And and I I I, I have problems with that because for for a number of reasons. First of all, they always put it. They always transplant it onto situations where um, there is no politics involved. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's. They use it to criticise people who are trying to further the the rights and the liberty and the safety and the dignity of other people. You know, they use it to attack people who are using so. Therefore, in itself, if the if the things that have been um, uh, pushed forward are human issues, then to say this is politically correct, well, it's it's almost nonsensical. You know, what 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 is political about that? You know, there's, there's nothing. And and the second thing about it is to say that the phrase in itself is just it's a stick that's used to beat people who are trying to make a difference. You know, who are tr- who recognise perhaps what it is to be a human being, you know, and, and to to discredit them is just an effort to maintain the same old status quo. That That's what it is. That's why I don't lose sleep over it, but that's why I find that phrase so fucking irksome because it's yeah. a nonsense phrase, you know. <laughs> I mean, mate, I mean, I could talk to you about this for another three hours, I reckon. Um, but, you know, I've just realised actually that we've been going nearly 20-odd minutes here and I've barely mentioned Napalm Death the Band. Um, one thing I've always been curious about as I've read through history and listened to your previous records and stuff, uh, you came in on Harmony Corruption, if I remember correctly. That's that's right, yeah. yeah. Um interesting timestamp for you to come in because Napalm Death had already secured this fan base that absolutely adored what they'd created and then you came in right to the point where the tonality and the tempo was just taking a little bit of a shift and you know in hindsight do you think that step there having having the balls to take do a tempo shift like is on harmony corruption even though you already had an adoring fan base is that actually the most punk thing you could possibly have done i know well, that sounds like a paradoxical yeah. universe I, I would I, I would question your phrase adoring fan base <laughs> i think that's one of them that is probably uh, Probably sort of um, in keeping with Napalm Death, if I'm honest, you know, but I understand the point you're trying to make. Yeah. But, uh, you know, here's the thing, mate. The thing about Harmony Corruption is it almost happened by accident in a lot of ways. It was, you know, that what what does that album, what, what makes people like separate it out from what came before is the sound, I think, yeah. of that album. But you've got to remember this is that there's a number of things. First of all, the idea of going to Morris Sound Studios, which, let's be honest, was a studio where a lot of death metal bands were recording, was not actually the band's idea. Earache really wanted us to go there, you know, because they saw merit in that. And we, we were kind of like, up to a point, we were like, well, what, why do we want to go there when we, when we can just record in England? You know, it's, you know, for us, it's just a lot of faffing about, you know, going over to Florida. But then, of course you got to remember the pull of like five young kids, basically yeah. never really been, you know, especially me and Shane, like, you know, working class kids, you know, that had never been anywhere significant in our lives in terms of sun, sea and sand and all that stuff. And we were like, and in the end, Iraq, we're like, well, it's Florida and there's fucking palm trees and beaches. And we were like, you know what? 
hmm, maybe this does seem quite nice, you know. Um, So we went with it in the end. The way the the fact the album sounded like it did, well, Scott Burns basically did that, you know. I mean, uh, I don't think it was the right sound for Napalm. I've always said it to this day, and I will never change my opinion on that, you know. I think um, that album needed a much more much more a sound of napalm in its own right you know um it, it, to me it's too thin the sound it's not raw enough but that's actually not a criticism of scott's production because scott's production is farming you know for certain bands and scott did as scott thought was appropriate you know and i love scott burns to death you know it's, it's, i love him to death you know but i just think that us not us are still um being together as a unit not that long and unsure of what we should do you know with the sound and stuff like that and letting scott have such a free reign that's why the album sound turned out as it did you know um that's why it seems a certain way to a lot of people you know but there was the the, like a radical shift in that direction uh, creatively was not I would argue was not on our agenda per se. Yes, we wanted to move things on a bit, but it wasn't like we didn't have a a radical change to metal in our minds. It was not our thing, you know, it wasn't, you know. Just going to fast forward uh, around about a decade here. Um, You've always made a point that when you go into the writing of a record, your intention is always to create something that's important to you and will potentially be to others. Um, when you were writing Enemy of the Music Business, mm. do you remember what kind of mind frame you were in on the music industry at that point? Because me personally, I feel like that's the most li- one of the most lyrically direct you've ever been. Uh, that's you, that's a, a fair point. Actually. A lot of your points, usually lyrically, uh, are not hidden, but they're kind of like metaphorical. Yeah, there's uh, the, like a balance between yeah. between uh, the reality and using metaphor. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, it's well, good observation. Yeah. Whereas, like when you listen to Vermin, politicians, and next yeah. on the list, I mean, it, I mean, you know, it is really quite evident uh, what you're going for there. Uh, so, what what kind of mind frame were you in? Were, were you like music industry is fucking shit? And if it wasn't for the fact that I love doing this, I would stay 50 miles away from it. Is that where you well, were? Well, we, we, to a, to a point. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were, we were, I, I would, you know, I think we would have made that album anyway. I think in, in any case, I mean, we were, we weren't particularly a wounded animal in that respect. We had had some bad experiences with, with, with the music industry. But in any case, we always considered ourselves to be our own ends. We didn't need the bigger side of the music industry to exist as a band. Because if we did, well, Napalm Death wouldn't be Napalm Death because it would be dictated by corporate, you know, procedures that were just, just not on our, on our uh, menu, you know. So, but we, we did feel the need, you know, to be, to do a critique of the way the bigger side of the industry treated the bands, how bands were easily disposable and were easily manipulated because they just weren't protected enough, you know. Um, so that's what we did, you know. Like I say, we had a couple of bad experiences ourselves and I guess it left a sour taste and we just we just went with it, you know. So, um, but it, it, contrary to popular belief, it wasn't just a dig at Earache Records. We had, we had our problems with Earache Records. 
for sure but it was more it was more it wasn't solely directed at them as like a bitter acidic kind of retort you know it wasn't it was a more of a our commentary on the general industry which we thought was pretty fucking shit in a lot of ways you know and and that's why we always tried to we learned our lessons, you know, but we always tried to plow our own furrow as such. You know, independence to us means means a fucking lot, you know. So, you're a very busy guy, and I'm very curious that we are. I'm very aware, that, sorry, that we are starting to run out of time here. So, uh, I will um, have to end. I'll, I'll end it on this one for you for the time being. Although I, I will try and get another interview in with you if possible, because I've got so much more that I could. You know, Christian, we've you. still got we've still got five minutes. You know, where you don't you don't have to. You know, you, right. you know that. Then. We'll see how far we can stretch this one, then, Barney. Um, okay. Utilitarian, apex predator, and now throws have joined the jaws of defeatism, which I haven't even had a chance to say yet. Fucking great record. Thank um, you. That is, I mean, that is a ridiculous run of form considering, uh, I don't mean to stereotype here, Barney, but, you know, usually bands that have been going for 30 odd years, usually when you, when you get towards album 15, 16, they start phoning it in a bit. I'm not going to name any names, but, you, you know, usually once you get to 15th, 16th record, you're expecting the same thing they did in 1985, but just not as good <laughs> because they already wrote the thing they did in 1985. However, uh, utilitarian Apex Predator and they had a new record unbelievable run of form I'm assuming this is the most inspired you've ever been or if not the most inspired you've been since the late late 90s oh you know here's the thing mate I mean uh, you uh, we, 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 when you accrue this number of albums naturally I think you just as you become more experienced, the the chemistry, the the writing chemistry in the band just improves. You know, I, I wouldn't say there's any any more or less inspiration since Enemy of the Music Business, since Utopia Banished. You know, since a lot of the albums I could name that were particular highlights for me. You know, although if you speak to another like Shane, you he might give you a different albums. You know, because it's all subjective. You know, but. Uh, um, I, 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 the, the inspiration is, is pretty consistent for me. You know, you, all, all we quite simply do is we, we write what's appropriate, what we feel is appropriate for Napalm Death at a particular point in time. You know, that's what we do. With experience comes, because Napalm does have a massive wide raft of influences, you know, and we utilize those influences, I think, better over time in terms of the amalgamation of 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 the sub styles into the music so to 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 just explain a little bit more so i think now you can look at throws of joy and see three or four or five elements in one song whereas perhaps five six seven albums ago you would have gone yeah well that's the traditional coming off the rails kind of song and this is the kind of swan style song you know and this is the this is the um you know whatever other sub style kind of song um you you could separate them out but now i think the stuff the styles are amalgamated a lot better um from song to song you know so that's where i think we've we've moved onwards you know the inspiration's always been there I wouldn't say it's any more or less since those albums that I mentioned, you know, so. Barney, uh, what an amazing honour uh, this has been for me. I really appreciate your time oh, today. Okay. Um, cool. 
new record, of course, it's great. Um, and congratulations on that. Uh, congratulations yeah. on a tremendous, tremendous career, which Thank I really you. hope goes another 30 years, man. Well, <laughs> I hope you're like 80 doing this. Here's the thing. The reason why we're still after around after 30 years, and I must just pick you up on one word there, is because, to me, it's not a career. Never oh, has well. Never will be. You know, if it's a career, it means I'm. I, it's an obligation, and that I need to do it because, you know, that's what I'm stuck with doing. Never. You know, napalm is always about the vibrancy and the spontaneity, and you know, the excitement of the new things that we were creating, and playing the gigs and stuff like that. You know, once it loses that, then I think it will be either a shadow of its former self, or I'll just think it will disappear. You know. What an amazing note to end on. Uh, again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Bye. No problem, mate. Any time. Take care, All the mate. Best of you. Bye-bye. Cheers.